Section 1 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Oampara. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 3, edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section 1. The Miller of Corbet. Corvée, with its fertile and vine-crowned banks rising above the Seine, uncontaminated by the pollutions poured forth thereafter into its glassy waters by a filthy capital. Corbet, which as Bologna is termed the fat, might assuredly be called the mealy Corbet, whose villas line the shore with their well-trimmed avenues of limes, and here and there a shrub dipping down into the stream to shelter the baths constructed by the diverse proprietors in the bed of the river. The prosperous little town is neither so ornate in its environs at Richmond, nor so stately in its domiciles as Hampton Court, but the wooded heights of Saint-Germain rise majestically above its suburbs, and if a palace be lacking, it boasts an edifice still more unique and almost as imposing, the celebrated mill of Corbet. It happened that at the period immediately preceding the frightful epoch of the French Revolution, the Tremblay had brighter things to boast of than its golden carp, purer things than even its crystal fountains. The little farm, concealed within its cozy nook, was tenanted by a worthy white named Mathura, whose two daughters enjoyed the envied appellation of the Roses of Corbet. It is impossible to conceive two lovelier creatures, or two more resembling each other in person, more thoroughly dissimilar in character and disposition. There was but a year's difference between them in age. There was a century's in sentiment. Manette, the elder sister, was a light, lively, gay-hearted creature, rayanta as the landscapes of Corbet. Justine, the younger, with the same blue eyes, the same silken hair, the same trim ankle and well-formed figure, was sad and sober. And the neighbors, who noted among themselves her gravity of aspect, were apt to attribute it to the influence of the broken constitution of the mother, who died of a pulmonary disorder in giving her birth. Both sisters, however, by the discretion of their deportment, strengthened the high distinctions attained by their beauty. And Mathura, although watchful over the two nymphs of the Tremblay as a miser over his gold, was not afraid to let his daughters take their stand on market days upon the Plaza de Notre Dame of Corbeil. With their fair faces shaded by the wide straw hats in use among the peasants of the departments of the Seine et to preside over the sale of the vegetable produce of his farm, and more especially over the stand of garden flowers and exotics, the pride of the gay pater surrounding the limpid bath of the Reine Blanche. Manette was a great adept in the art of persuasion to a customer. Recommended by her animated accent and laughing eyes, his stalest melons and greenest grapes were readily purchased by the Parisian cockneys who came down to Corbet to swallow a mouthful or two of country air and whatever else Providence might send them, while Justine, an expert florist, had so much to say and said it so gently and well, touching the culture of her clove pinks and geraniums, that there appeared every probability of Mathura being enabled to add a second cow to his pastures and another brood or two of ducks to the clear ponds of the Ploisance in the course of the summer. Everything prospered with them. While the father busied himself with the cares of his farm, the daughters contrived to render it available. The barley mow and the hayrick diminished, the beds of ranculuses and tulips were bereft of their brilliant show. But Mascheras' long leather purse grew heavier, his linen press was stocked, and at length he took his pipe at even as well as morning tide, without much self-reproach on the score of economy. He even made the girls partakers of his gains, and Justine had the happiness to secure from her earnings a weekly mass for the spiritual repose of her mother at the altar of the Sacre Cure in the church of Saint-Spierre. Manette, however, had other objects to which to devote her superfluous wealth. Manette was young and pretty enough to be curious in the lace of her pinners and the lawn of her kerchief. It was observed one day, as she took her usual stand on the marketplace, that she exhibited a pair of long gold earrings under her straw hat, and that a cross of gold was suspended to the black velvet which habitually encircled her slender throat, and one or two of the most censorious of the ladies of the Falberg who were accustomed to exchange a few civil words with the roses of the corbeil while they had laid in their stock of mignonettes 
soon turn disdainfully away when they notice this succession of finery mademoiselle benoit indeed the squinty-eyed daughter of a retired notary of saint germain was heard to whisper that it was no wonder manette of la tremblay grew so fine now that she was rowed over the river so often by young monsieur clairvaux of the douze moulins and now that young monsieur clairvaux of the douze moulins found the fountains of la tremblay so refreshing during the midsummer heats the prudes and scandal-mongers were determined to espy mischief in the innocent coquetry of poor manette one sultry summer afternoon however the young girl herself happened to overhear these insinuations of her customers when she not only pettishly removed from her person the ornaments which had caused them to arise but instantly took her way homeward sobbing with indignation and leaving to her sister the disposal of her merchandise and the task of remonstrating with her detractors in extenuation of manette's proceedings now well know mademoiselle benoit said justine in her usual mild conciliating tone that if monsieur clarivaux finds his way to la tremblay it is only in the way of business for his father's mill and much against my sister's inclinations you who are a kinswoman of his family cannot but be aware that manette has more than once complained to the old gentleman of the importunities of his son is it in the way of business for the mill retorted the provoked spinster that my cousin clarivaux escorts mademoiselle manette to all the ducasse of the neighbourhood charlet the ferryman related to me only yesterday that he had himself encountered the young people one evening after dusk but her accusations were cut short the looks of justine warned the evil speaker that some person of importance stood beside her and as mademoiselle benoit turned hastily round the large dark eyes of felix clarivaux scowled her into silence manette having met him lounging as usual upon her path homeward to the farm had appealed to his justice against the insolence of his cousin nor did she hesitate to assail him with her usual epithets of female disdain and the revenge of felix was to wreak upon the agent virago threefold the measure of ill usage he had received from the object of his affections it was not every one however who would have adventured so boldly as manette to vent reproaches on felix clairvaux felix was a man whom if few people loved most people feared although in every way extrinsically endowed to win affection and only qualified to excite apprehension by a sort of taciturn reserve inspiring involuntary mistrust of his temper and disposition he was chargeable with no act of violence no act of injustice he was charitable generous humane yet his associates one and all refrained from making him their friend and from the singular motive that they felt convinced he was capable of becoming a bitter enemy and thus it was that few people loved felix he was the son of o'clairvaux the rich miller of corbeil but he was nothing more clairvaux's whole life had been spent in the task of money-getting and money-sparing and the pastime of deceiving the world of the extent of his gains and his savings no one not even his son had the most remote idea of the amount of clairvaux's property but when it was rumored in corbeil that he had made overtures for an alliance between felix and mademoiselle de montigny co-heiress of the chateau de saint paul the gossips of the town decided he must be a bolder or richer man than they had previously imagined the aristocratic day prefixed to the name of the young lady being equivalent to the value of at least thirty thousand crowns in a marriage contract with the son of the miller of corbeil neither the distinction it imparted however nor any other attraction sufficed to overcome the opposition of felix to the match while mademoiselle benoit and her crew were busy in computing what amount of wealth could justify the clairvaux in pretending to so grand a connection the young man explicitly declared to his father his determination to wed elsewhere this might have been held sufficient provocation but when felix came to particularize that the partner he had chosen was no other than pretty manette the twin rose of corbeil the gardener's daughter of la tremblay the wrath testified by old clairvaux against his son was easily accounted for the cast-off prejudices of the great usually descend to the little and at a time when even the peerage of france was beginning to republicanize when versailles itself had declared in favor of the natural equality of the human species it was time for the miller to disdain the interalliance of his family with that of a market gardener nor could an emperor of germany insulted by the determination of his son 
the king of the Romans to espouse the daughter of some petty baron of the empire, have shown himself more fiercely indignant than old Clarivaux. I had already heard from our cousin Benoit, cried he, that it was inferred in the town no good would come of your everlasting visits to the Stiva farm yonder, over the water. But look you, Master Felix, if ever again you set foot upon the turf of the Tremblay, I will assuredly put the width of my threshold between you and me for evermore. I, sir, and marry again, Mademoiselle de Montini, perhaps, why not the father as well as the son, and beget sons and daughters who shall not thwart me in my old age, although they share my inheritance with my elder and more stubborn child. You cannot do better, sir, replied Felix, without moving a muscle of his handsome but impassive countenance. Although you deny my choice, I am far from inclined to find fault with yours. Marry Mademoiselle de Montini, disinherit me if you will. I have still two strong arms and as strong a heart to enable me to get my own living and pursue my own inclinations. And Clarivaux, well aware of the obstinacy of his son's resolves, gave over the case for lost, and even made a solemn progress to the Chateau de Saint-Paul to offer his apologies to the family of Montini and tender the retraction of his proposals. Yet, in spite of this resignation and these formal measures, all hope of the alliance was not at an end. Old Clarivaux had an abettor in his projects on whom he little calculated. He could not be more firmly determined that Felix should never become the husband of the gardener's daughter than Manette that she should never become the wife of the miller's son. No, it was not for him that she had added the offending trinkets to her costume, or folded the snowy lawn upon her bosom. It was not for him that she loitered by the way on the road from La Tremblay to the marketplace. It was not for him that she ensconced her well-turned foot in slippers of Spanish Morocco to dance upon the greensward at the annual feat of Saint Etienne at Essan. There were other attractions at the mill of Corbet than the homage of Félix Clarivaux and Marfuaz, daughter so inaccessible to the addresses of one who wooed her with the stern gravity of a Spanish hidalgo, or rather with the jealous but impassioned tenderness of an Ursman, had given her heart with very little asking to young Valentine, the son of Charlet, the ferryman of Corbet. As has been already observed, the prejudices of the great are eagerly adopted by the little, and the rich miller could not express himself more vehemently against his son's attachment to the daughter of the market gardener than did the market gardener in his turn on hearing his daughter's engagement to the son of a poor ferryman of the Seine. Clarivaux wished to marry Felix to the high-born Clarice de Montini, Mathura to marry Manette to the wealthy Felix. Clarivaux threatened to disinherit his son, Mathura threatened to horsewhip his daughter, and when the evening succeeding the general éclaircissement, Felix rode over to La Tremblay, and having fastened his boat to the usual stump, made his way toward a stone bench among the acacias, where often at the same hour he had found the two daughters of Mathura together, now talking, now listening, sometimes to each other, sometimes to the gurgling of the springs among the grass, or the whistling of the blackbirds in the groves of Saint-Germain. He was bitterly taxed by Manette with the indignities he had been the means of drawing upon her endurance. "'It is a cruel thing of you, Monsieur Felix,' said she, "'to persist in persecuting me thus, after I have again and again told you that were you Count of Corbet, or the King of France himself, I would never be your wife, and now you have provoked my father to misuse me, the first time he ever breathed a harsh word against either of his children. I do but detest you the more. Hate me and welcome, said Felix in an unaltered voice. I have heard you say as much before, and been nothing moved. But never, till today, never, till from your father's lips this morning, did I learn that you preferred another, that you stooped to bestow the love denied to me upon yonder beggar, the son of a beggar, the hireling drudge of my father's mill? What in heaven, what on earth, do you see to move your affection in such a fellow as Valentine? Answer me, Manette, what do you see to like in Valentine? that if he were rich 
like yourself, Monsieur Félix Clarivaux, he would not always be thinking of riches and giving the name of beggar as a word of reproach to others less fortunate than himself, for Valentine has the heart of a prince. Truly a ragged prince, and with a precious cabin for his palace, retorted the miller's son, at once justifying her accusation as you will find when you take your place yonder in charlet's hovel among the ten half-fed half-clothed brats who call him father and who even for that scanty food and scanty clothing are indebted to the labour of valentine added manette with firmness of valentine who when his work at the mill is over comes back to his father's hut with a smile upon his face and a song upon his lips and instead of grumbling and murmuring that his limbs are aching with toil sits down cheerfully to his osier weaving or mat-work or during the summer season rows off as stoutly as though his arms had not done a turn of work through the day to cut reeds for the thatchers or the tile-makers and for what does he labour to lay a porch for himself or to purchase the means of selfish pleasure no monsieur felix no to get bread for his paralytic mother raiment for his brothers and sisters rent to requite your own purse-proud father for the use of the miserable hut you hold so cheap proud as you are of your fortune your very means have been swelled by his industry manette whispered the gentle justine laying her hand imploringly upon her sister's shoulder you know not how great an injury you may be doing valentine i understand you replied manette aloud although you are afraid to speak out you mean that monsieur felix will be a powerful malicious enemy to him courage courage sister valentine by the sweat of his brow and the labour of his hands earns wages from the miller of corbeil but he is not therefore the slave of either o clarivaux or his son there is nothing to fear for valentine nor any reason why i should not acquaint the gentleman who is base enough to taunt him with beggary that i would rather make one in the hovel by the river-side among its merry inmates and the warm hearts that would welcome me so kindly than play the lady in a cold narrow-minded family of clarivaux where the only cheerful sound is the clack of their own mill by this time the soul of felix was overflowing with rage he made no allowance for the irritability of a quick-tempered girl opposed for the first time in her inclinations but attributed every word uttered by manette to malice prepense to preconceived bitterness such as that engendered by the viper nature of his kinswoman mademoiselle benoit and had no doubt that such injurious expression that she had lavished upon him and his were an habitual use between herself and valentine her father's hireling on her indeed he could avenge nothing but him felix ground his teeth for rage as he thought of valentine but he uttered not a syllable his wrath was silent as it was deadly and the stillness was only interrupted by the sobs of manette whose petulance as usual exhausted itself in tears father cried she suddenly starting up from justine's pacifying embraces as the footsteps of mathura were heard approaching the bench on which they sat i beseech you command monsieur felix clarivaux to quit this place you explained to me this morning the wickedness of children presuming to disobey their parents you will not surely encourage a son to rebel against his father oh clarivaux has laid his injunctions on felix to visit la tremblay no more you have pride too father surely you will not stoop to have it said that you laid snares to seduce a raw inexperienced boy into marriage with your daughter and who will dare to say so ejaculated the young man trembling with suppressed rage at the epithets bestowed upon him your own kinswoman mademoiselle benoit has said so a thousand times mademoiselle benoit is an accursed fool cried old mathura and young clarivaux saw no cause to dispute the assertion but you cannot surely my dear father wish monsieur felix to get into trouble by his visits to la tremblay said justine mildly a question to which the gardener farmer found it so difficult to reply that he leant down on pretext of caressing the shaggy-looking cur which was accustomed to lag at his heels rather than venture on a direct answer and how is my father to hear of them demanded clarivaux haughtily bending his brow thus replied justine pointing through the dusk now gathering round them 
to the approaching figure of a man bending under the weight of a sack of meal, who, on putting down his burden and raising his head as he proceeded to wipe his streaming brows, presented to their view the homely features but prepossessing countenance of Valentine, while Charlet's son, startled to find his young master thus apparently domesticated with Mathura and his daughters, yet in no wise daunted by his presence, cheerfully saluted the party. "'What are you doing here, sir?' demanded Felix in an angry voice. "'Obeying the orders of the overseer, Monsieur Felix,' replied the young man, "'who bade me bring over. "'Is this a time for doing your mill-work?' interrupted Felix. "'I shall represent to-morrow to my father that you defer the execution of his business till after hours, in order to suit your own whims and convenience.' "'You will represent what you please, sir,' answered Valentine. But one honest man's word is as good as another's, and Monsieur Benedine, the overseer, has known me too well from a boy upward as a truth-teller and fair dealer not to credit my assurance that every minute of my morning's time was spent in my duty to my employer. If I have pushed the boat over to La Tremblay to deliver Monsieur Mathura his meal this evening instead of tomorrow morning as I was directed, it is only because I desire to offer him the bonsoir and my respects to the young ladies. Your respects and your salutations are not wanted here, my lad, growled Mathura. If you had brought me the couple of crowns I have had to score up against your father for milk and meal furnished to your family, you would have done something more to the purpose. And Mathura, excited by the desire of saying a vexatious thing to the pauper who had presumed to lift his eyes to his pretty manette, renounced the generous intention of his better nature to make a free gift to the needy family of the overflowings of his cruise of plenty. "'Do not fancy I come empty-handed,' said Valentine mildly, but drawing up with conscious pride as he tendered the payment of the two crowns to the more prosperous farmer. And Manette's heart beat till it was ready to burst her bosom for joy that her lover was able to redeem himself from humiliation in his rival's presence.' If I have delayed thus long, Monsieur Mathura, it is that grievous sickness has arisen in my family from the damps of the season, Monsieur Clarivaux's workmen having neglected to repair the roof of our hut according to his covenant. But remember that, although the cost of drugs and doctors may have kept us in your debt, it has not caused me to break my word. I promised you payment at midsummer, and Saturday next is the eve of Saint-Jean. Good, Valentine, good, replied Mathura jerking the money into his pocket, and ashamed of the meanness in which he had been betrayed. You are an honest lad, and I have naught to say against you in your way. But your way is not mine, and I do not intend to make it so. Henceforward I shall beg Monsieur Bernardine to choose some other of his mill lads to do what business may chance to stand between us, and charge my old friend Charlet to lay his injunctions on yourself not to be gadding about upon idle errands of evenings or at least not upon premises of mine. You have said enough, Master Mathura, answered Valentine, involuntarily glancing toward the two girls, who stood overcome with grief and embarrassment, leaning on each other under the acacia trees. I am well aware to whom I am indebted for this sudden change of welcome, and shall take an opportunity to thank the tale-bearer who, for some time past, has been base enough to play the spy upon my actions. You lie! vociferated Felix, upon whom the accusing looks of Valentine were now directed. You lie like a dog! Coward that you are, in daring to use such words to me, cried the young man, suddenly smiting a violent blow upon his own breast. When you know that I cannot raise my hand against you so long as the bread eaten by my family is provided by your father's wages. You have also their beggary to thank for screening your insolence from chastisement, said the contemptuous Felix. And as you seem to be in no condition to play the hero, beware in future how you assume the braggart. Valentine, dear Valentine, exclaimed Justine, throwing herself before young Clarivaux to intercept the spring which she perceived Valentine on the point of making upon his person. Remember your poor mother. Remember your six sisters. Let me go, cried he, struggling in the silent embrace of Manette, which not even her father's presence sufficed to check when she saw her lover on the eve of rushing into violence, the inevitable ruin to himself and his family. Let me go, let me not live to have it said of me that I dared not defend myself against the insults of a villain. 
Then dashing forward and again, as suddenly checking himself, he burst into tears and covered his face with his hands while he exclaimed, He is right. I dare not strike him. I dare not lay my hand on the son of the miller of Corbeil. I was born too poor to indulge in the sense of justice and honor. The walls that shelter us are his father's walls. The food we eat springs from him. Father, mother, brothers, sisters. This is the hardest thing I have had to bear for your sake. Never mind him, Valentine. Be of good cheer, dear, dear Valentine, sobbed Manette, her sensitive nature excited to the utmost pitch of violence by his distresses. Let him be as rich and audacious as he will. I hold him but a dastard and a beggar. From me he will obtain nothing, Valentine, nothing but scorn and detestation. Poor as you are, so poor will I be. Despise you as they may. I honor you. I revere you. I love you. My father may drive me forth. My friends disown me. But they have urged me on into defiance by their misdoings toward you. Valentine, dear Valentine, hear me. Hear your wife, and leave this man to the rebukes of his own conscience. Sad was the scene that ensued upon this open violation of parental authority. But Valentine had not the affliction of seeing the woman he loved savagely entreated by her enraged father. For a while, Mathura was engaged in driving back his daughter to the farm and locking her into her room. Felix and himself were entwined in a deadly struggle, a struggle that left him for a few seconds breathless and senseless on the turf, for the athletic Clairvaux was as much the superior of the ill-nourished overtasked Valentine in personal strength as in worldly endowments. Young Bapteré, a hind employed upon the farm, attracted to the spot by the tumult of the scuffle, proceeded to raise him from the ground, while Felix hastily made off toward Corbet. But when Valentine recovered the effect of his stunning fall sufficiently to comprehend what had passed, and to feel he had been engaged in an altercation with his master's son, which would probably end in the ruin of his whole household, he wrung his hands for very bitterness. Would that I were dead, he ejaculated as he took his way back to his father's ferryboat. Machara has sworn to bestow his daughter upon another. Monsieur Clarivaux will eject my mother from her habitation when he learns what has occurred. My intemperance will seal the fate of my family without obtaining me the hand of Minette. Would, would that I were dead. Better be in my grave than thus a burden to myself and all the world. Be of good cheer, Valentine, cried the lad Baptiré, who had followed and was aiding him to unmoor his boat. Mademoiselle Manette loves you in spite of them all. Mademoiselle Manette has promised that she will one day be your wife. No, no wife, no house, no hope, no rest. I was born with the curse of God upon my soul, uttered the ferryman's son, looking up to the sky, where the faint flashes of a summer storm was already streaming, as if in impious reproach to the omnipotence who had created a wretch so miserable. I was born to eat the bread of toil and bitterness. What matters it that such an outcast should cease to live? And it came to pass that every petulant word uttered by Valentine to the farm lad Bateré during that brief colloquy was eventually inscribed in the judicial archives of the country, with the view of throwing light upon the incidents following the quarrel of that fatal night. Old Charlet's son never again set foot upon the turf of La Tremblay. Valentine was mistaken, however, in supposing that his dispute with Felix would ensure his dismissal from the mill of Corbet. Either old Clairvaux saw no cause for displeasure in his conduct, or Felix had generously, or perhaps discreetly, forborne to prefer a complaint against him. When, at the ringing of the work-bell the following morning, he presented himself as usual among the men, not a word of remark was made on the subject by Bernardine, the overseer. Valentine had been cutting rushes on the river by early as daylight in order to repair, to the best of his own abilities, the dilapidated roof of the hovel, from whence he so much dreaded to witness the ejection of his family, and heartsick with labor and fasting, he was scarcely able to support the struggle of his feelings on ascertaining that his rashness had not been the means of immediate injury to his sick and feeble mother. In the course of the day, he had still stronger evidence that no displeasure existed against him in the mind of the Clairvaux, for a trustworthy messenger being needed to carry over to Labrie the copy of a contract of sale for signature to one of the most extensive corn growers of the district, Valentine was chosen for the office, the usual factor being absent on pressing business at the market of Melun. 
having received his instructions he accordingly departed and as it was held impossible for him to return to corbeil till a late hour at night it was settled that he should tender an account of his commission to m bernardine the following morning when he was to be at the mill half an hour previous to his usual time at that usual time however the work-bell rang but no valentine made his appearance and the young men in clarivaux's employment began to joke among themselves swearing that the sober valentine must have been guilty of some excess and detained on the road at a late hour bernardine dispatched one of the boys to charlet's cottage to make inquiries but still no valentine had been heard of and the old ferryman uneasy in his turn began to inquire on what sort of a horse his son was mounted for the expedition a valuable one a favored with the master and monsieur felix was the reply but it was the temper of the beast alone and not its value that interested charlet the poor old man however had soon ample opportunity of judging for himself for having returned to the mill with bernardine's messenger he found a crowd of workmen and all the idlers of the town assembled round the door of the holla adjoining clarivaux's mill with the horse on which valentine had set off on the preceding day standing saddled and bridled in the midst of them he's arrived then hastily inquired charlet of one of clarivaux's men who was lounging on the outskirts of the crowd no there are no tidings of valentine replied the fellow carelessly not noticing whom he addressed the horse has been brought home by a countryman who found him ranging loose this morning in the forest of senar and having rode him as far as Esson to make inquiries found the beast recognized easily enough as the favorite bay of the miller of corbeil but valentine ejaculated the old man striking his hands together impatient that anyone should talk of a horse when he was asking for his son what can have become of valentine and already from all parts of the crowd the same question was arising what can have become of valentine you had better go home chalet said bernardine when the same inquiry had been fruitlessly reiterated for two hours longer i will send word to you the first news that reaches us take another glass of wine man and do not tremble so if you can help it no harm can have befallen your son he had no money in his pocket either to lead him into intemperance or to tempt any evil disposed person to attack him the lad has got into some foolish scrape on the road has lost the contract perhaps and is afraid to return but monsieur has sent out in every direction to seek information respecting him and before evening i wager my life we know all about the matter and that it will prove to be a thing of no manner of moment but bernardine was only half justified in his anticipations before evening the public authorities were summoned and a procès verbal was drawn up specifying the finding of the body of the unfortunate valentine suspended by his own handkerchief to a tree in the forest of senar he had destroyed himself his imprecations of the preceding night were now remembered and recorded it was recollected that he had declared himself weary of the world that in his despair he had cursed his maker as the origin of his woes nothing alas could be plainer valentine had blasphemed the almighty and straightway like the recreant apostle gone and hanged himself it was noticed with sympathy by all that throughout the investigation of the case young clarivaux who could not but tax himself as the unintentional cause of the misfortune was pale as death and completely overpowered by his feelings but if felix sorrowed for the departed what was the affliction of her whom he had so dearly loved of those who so dearly loved him what was the agony of minette when she knew that he for whom she would have sacrificed all had incurred the guilt of the suicide she did not hold him guilty except indeed in leaving her behind to struggle alone with the troubles of the world and as soon as the daylight dawned on the day succeeding that when the body of valentine was discovered in the forest and after the usual forms deposited by the marchus of corbeil in his father's hovel previously to interment she set out alone for charlet's cottage to comfort the living to mourn over the dead it was a grievous sight that miserable hut standing alone in the midst of the green meadows of the borders of the seine like a thing abandoned to the mercy of nature that miserable hut whose prop was now reft away that refuge for those who had none left to succor them none left to minister to their wants or wipe away their tears mathurat's daughter lifted the latch as gently as though it were possible that any under charlet's roof could at such a season be sleeping and with the calmness of despair entered the house of mourning 
and mournful indeed was the spectacle. There, on the only pallet, lay the paralytic mother, hiding her face in the clothes that she might not look upon the disfigured corpse of her firstborn, the mattress affording the customary bed to the children, having been already carried out and sold by the poor ferryman to secure the means of a decent burial for his boy. And there the livid body of Valentine lay stretched upon the very rushes which his own hand had cut for so different a purpose, while his little brothers and sisters, deprived of their rest and terrified and hungry, were huddled together in a corner, staring with wonder on all that was passing. Charlet, usually so reckless amid his wants and misfortunes, sat with his head drooping on his breast, and scarcely raised his eyes on Minette's entrance. Nor was it till she went close up to him, and kneeled at his feet and called him father, and reviled herself as the cause of the mischief which had happened, that the unhappy man seemed moved to consciousness. Had he lived, I should have been your daughter, said Manette, hiding her weeping face upon his knees. And then all I had would have been yours. Accept it now, Charlet, for his sake, she continued, placing in his hand a small bag containing the amount of hers and Justine's earnings. Accept it now when it can be useful, for to me worldly goods are henceforward vain and she wept long and bitterly while the little children who had been taught by valentine to love her crept forward and clung to her gown and whispered to her to be comforted for that their brother was surely with god yes he is with god said the broken-hearted old man in a hoarse voice he whose loss renders these little ones worse than fatherless and gives so bitter a pang to the poor gray-headed parents to whom he never never gave pain before bless be with god my boy may appear at the tribunal of grace with the stain of self-murder on his soul he who never injured mortal man may have been moved to lift his hand against his own precious life but heaven judges us not as we judge each other heaven witnessed the cares the trials the struggles of my poor valentine and noted the maddening brain the breaking heart of the proud pauper the tender son the good brother the good christian and heaven will forgive him why why did he forsake us ejaculated mathieu's daughter rising from her knees and tottering toward the body oh valentine valentine why did you forsake me and lifting up the cloth with which the pious care of the father had covered the face of the dead she imprinted a fervent kiss upon the blue lips of him who should have been her husband unterrified by the starting eyes the distended nostrils and all the ghastly evidence of his mode of death at that moment her father and sister having missed her from the farm and readily conjecturing her route entered the cottage in search of manette but mathieu's displeasure against the deceased was over now and instead of expressing dissatisfaction at his daughter's proceedings he not only advanced with tearful eyes to sprinkle holy water on the body of her ill-starred lover but asked permission of charlet to follow it to the grave the worthy bernardine had already expressed his intention to be present at the burial ceremony and when the remains of the warm and true valentine were deposited in the pauper's trench of the churchyard of st germain they were transported thither on the shoulders of his comrades and followed by so vast a concourse of his fellow workmen and friends that the incense of their affliction was as that of a burnt offering calculated to propitiate the mercy of god toward the suicide it is probable that a catastrophe so lamentable would have produced a greater sensation and elicited a closer scrutiny in a little town so uneventful in its history as corbeil but that the still fiercer disasters of the french revolution had already begun in the capital and even the tongue of mademoiselle benoit found a nobler topic in the misfortunes of marie antoinette of france than in those of the roses of corbeil there was no time for sympathy in the sorrows of individuals clarivaux perplexed by apprehensions lest the vast granaries of his holla should attract the rapacity of the populace whose excesses were now every hour on the increase gratified without hesitation almost mechanically the request of his son that he would assign the gratuitous use of one of his wholesome cottages to charlet's afflicted family nor was it needful for felix to covenant in return that he would seek no further intercourse with the beauty of la tremblay 
The old man, having already ascertained that from the period of Valentine's untimely end, his rival had made a sacrifice of the ill-omened connection. Even Mademoiselle Benoit was ready to avow that Monsieur Felix had altogether renounced his intention of a marriage with Manette. Meanwhile, not only Mademoiselle Benoit, but every gossip of the United Community was secretly marveling over the extraordinary change that had taken place in the deportment of young Clairvaux, and one and all inferred from the haggard aspect of his face and the gradual emaciation of his person that his attachment to Mathura's daughter had been deeper than they had imagined possible. The sacrifice of his passion was evidently preying upon his constitution. He grew languid, tremulous. His strength was failing. His temper softened. His audacious deportment had given place to mild depression instead of sharing the political enthusiasm, Tirzedat, of which he formed a part, instead of exulting in the degradation of an order which he had been accustomed to revile as his natural enemy. Felix appeared to regard with utter indifference the alarms of his father and the triumphs of the Republican Party. The young man was not, however, altogether so careless as he appeared. Felix nourished in his heart an important project. Although he had done his part toward the resistance of the foreign alliance created for the suppression of civil and religious liberty in France, by supplying an active substitute to the conscription, he now determined to devote his personal services to his country. And fully aware of the opposition he was likely to experience from a parent who reverenced him as his heir fully as much as he loved him as a son, departed in secret from Corbet to volunteer in the ranks of the Republican army. Resolved to accomplish my part as a citizen by defending the rights of the nation against the insults of the minions of Peter and Kolberger, said the letter which he subsequently addressed to his father in explanation of his intentions. I have spared you the pain of opposing my immovable resolve, and to evade your pursuit, my dear father, have entered the army of the Republic under an assumed name nor till i have proved myself worthy to be classed among the most faithful of her sons shall i revisit corbeil my last entreaty is that you give all your confidence to bernardine your true and diligent servant and that you do not neglect the destitute family of charlet the ferryman i knew it would be thus murmured the gentle justine as she sauntered along the river walk of her father's garden looking toward the mill of corbeil when intelligence of young clairvaux's departure transpired in the town i was sure he could not remain here haunting the same spots and communicating with the same associates as before he is right to fly felix has nothing more to do at corbeil his penance must be accomplished elsewhere miserable miserable felix what thoughts what recollections accompany him in his flight what griefs what terrors have been undermining his health yet manette who so dearly loved valentine has seen and suspected nothing of all this while i i so long so hopelessly devoted to felix discerned his conscience-struck affliction from the first moment I saw him gazing yonder from the shore on Charlet's hovel. The forest of Senar, the forest of Senar. Oh, that I could free myself from the imagination of that scene, that fatal, fatal night. No sooner am I left alone than involuntary the whole black business arises before me. I fancy their encounter. I seem to hear their quarrel. I seem to see the struggle in which valentine must have fallen a victim ere the dreadful idea presented itself to felix of making him pass for a self-murderer appearances avouch the imputation appearances deceive the officers of justice deceived his comrades his master his father his friends his affianced wife but they did not deceive me for it was not on valentine's life but on the well-doing of felix clairvaux that my happiness was pledged and oh how i have watched over his repentance his despair had he triumphed in his wickedness i should have learned to hate him but to see him self-convicted penitent wretched although thrice secure from discovery 
miserable, miserable Felix, driven from his home by the clinging curse of reminiscences, henceforward to be attached to his birthplace. Oh, when will he venture to return to Corbeil? Meanwhile, the tumults of revolutionary violence were raging, and this question, at first universally reiterated in the little town, soon came to be repeated by old Clerivaux and Justine. The old man had already resigned the presidency of the mill to Bernardine the overseer, and the fine domain of Saint-Germain having become national property, by the emigration of the noble family with whom it was hereditary, the chateau was readily appropriated by the miller of Corbeil. Thither with a scanty household he retired, and there, uncared for and alone, falling gradually into a state of imbecility, it was a gratification to him, when tottering round the lawns whose beauty he was incapable of appreciating, to be accosted by the younger daughter of his neighbor Machura, with inquiries whether tidings had reached him from his son, and how it fared with the armies of France. But the old man's answer was ever the same. The armies of France were triumphant, but no tidings from his son. Great names were beginning to arise from obscurity in the annals of the country. Lan, Victor, Berendot, Murat, Durac, Berthet, Souchot, Sioux. A great soldier had conquered to its banners the eagle-plumed ensign of victory, but no conjecture enabled Clerivaux to discover under what designation Felix had either fallen on the field of honor or was struggling onward in the career of fame. It was rumored in the town that once, when a brigade, on its march to join the army of the Somba and Moose, halted at Essona, a superior officer was seen galloping back to the hide road in the dusk of the evening from the portal of the church of Saint-Spire, where, in the Tron de Pouve, adjoining the mausoleum of Count Hayman of Corbeil, a bank bill of considerable amount was found on the succeeding morning. But none could say that the stranger was Felix Clairvaux, and if indeed he, the sons of Egypt and Italy, had written strange to feature in his face. At length, it was the triumphant epoch of the recognition of Le Soldat Evu as first emperor of France, the miller of Corbeil, long sickly and doting, was finally gathered to his rest, when a public advertisement having been legally circulated by the authorities of the department, and the sale of the property subsequently announced, the heir, the long-absent, the half-forgotten Felix, appeared on the spot in the person of one of those eminent generals whose names had long been rife in the mouths of Corbeil, and their destinies commended to heaven by the prayers of their fellow countrymen. But when shortly afterwards the equipage of General Ley was seen entering the iron gates of the park of Saint-Germain, the notion of the presence of one of the heroes of Marengo, of the pyramids, of Austerlitz, seemed to have superseded all recollection of Felix Clairvaux. The villagers gazed on the noble person of the handsome, grave, and middle-aged soldier, whose head was more than slightly silvered by the toils of war, and saw no trace of the petulant youth they had been accustomed to watch eighteen years before crossing the river to la tremblay to laugh and jest with the roses of corbeil to his eyes meanwhile the season and the scene were very much the same as when he quitted them he had become a hero a statesman europe was familiar with his name and his voice had obtained weight in the councils of france his port was now erect and stately his step firm and measured his voice stern and commanding. He had learned to control the desires and passions of others. He had learned to control his own. Nothing in him but was altered. But there rolled the same blue seine, there smiled the same vineyards, there stood the mill of Corbeil, there rose the woods of Saint-Germain, there the chimneys of the farm of La Tremblay, there Far below in the meadows crumbled the ruins of a hovel, the hut of the ferryman, and there, there, in the distant horizon gloomed the forest of Senar, and lo, unsilenceably resounded in his ears the mandate, Thou shalt do no murder. It was some comfort to him to learn that Masira was no more, and the family of Charlet the ferryman dispersed and forgotten 
And the roses of Corbeil, inquired General Lay, in a low voice as accompanied by the gamekeeper of Saint-Germain on the evening of his arrival, he pursued his way along the terrace, gazing through the gray evening twilight upon the open country. Matura's elder daughter, mon général, she who married the young farmer named Baptiret, is the mother of ten fine children and still living at the Tremblay, said the garde du chasse. Her sister Justine, poor soul, has become a sister of charity. Hastily proceeding in their walk, the opening of the upper avenue of the chateau toward the vineyards brought them in sight of a fine, comely-looking countrywoman driving two cows and accompanied by a lout of a farming boy and two healthy little girls with untrimmed heads and dirty faces. Chen voilà justement, mon ses enfants, continued the gamekeeper. Mon Hola, mon Voici monsieur le général, qui se forme de vous et votre famille. And General Lay found himself perforce required to stand and receive the awkward courtesies of the great fat countrywoman before him and listen to her history of her father's dying of an asthma and her own happy match with Baptiré, the cowboy. Rav garçon, c'est jamais jeune foot, et bien aime du pauvre Valentine. Monsieur le général, se rappelle, sans doute, c'est pauvre Valentine? alas what else but the remembrance of valentine had kept him so long an alien from his father's hearth so long an exile from home and it was for the woman before him that he had borne so much incurred so much sinned so greatly so irreparably poor feeble human nature poor murdered valentine but the trial thus voluntarily encountered proved too much for felix and after remaining a few hours longer at saint germain General Lay quitted for the last time a spot abounding in soul-harrowing reminiscences, reminiscences rendering vain his toils of honor, his career of glory. For the brief remainder of his life, the fine mansion of Saint-Germain remained uninhabited, but the grave of General Lay is now at Ehrenbreitstein, his monument at the Pantheon, and his property having been bequeathed to the foundation of a military hospital, otherwise invested. Strangers abide at the chateau, a company of speculators have assumed the direction of the mill of Corbeil, and nothing remains to commemorate the past but the clear fountains of La Tremblay and a deserted grave in the churchyard in the village of Saint-Germain a grave whose accusing voice will be heard by the guilty soul even through the fearful stillness of eternity. End of section 1. Recording by Alan O. Impara.